1: Hello and welcome back. We hope you had a fun-filled holiday and are settling back into things as we start 2023. And here
2: at the RHS, we thought there's no better way to start the new year than with an episode fully focused on sustainable gardening.
1: It's something Gareth and I think about a lot with our own green patches. I know that as I look to the year ahead, I want to start making less impact on the environment in my garden to ensure that I'm as green as possible. For example, The price of fertilizers, risen out of all knowledge, it's vastly expensive. So I'm trying Lucerne pony pellets. They contain about 12% protein. That's about 5% nitrogen and can be added to the soil to improve it. And when they get wet in the soil, they swell up enormously. So you're kind of adding a fertilizer and a manure all at once.
2: Oh, that sounds fantastic, Guy. I know alfalfa or lucerne because it's something I've grown for my bees in the past and they absolutely love it. It's a really lovely kind of shrubby sort of clover type plant with really deep roots that can get loads of nutrients from the subsoil but also will fix nitrogen from the air. It's in a bit of a sustainability power plant, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It's very deep rooted and it's drought resistant as well.
2: It just shows you that amazing kind of power of nature to help with the challenges that we throw at it. And of course, the RHS is dedicated to making its gardens, as well as yours, as friendly to the natural world as possible. Today, you'll be hearing from our sustainability fellow, Chloe Sutcliffe, to get an inside look at some of the exciting research she's doing on measuring the environmental footprint of our horticultural practices.
3: I see
4: interactions, I suppose, in a gardening context with the natural world as a real point of leverage where people can connect with nature and take care of nature and feel that they have some power to influence things for the better.
1: Before a handful of our colleagues at the RHS share their go-to sustainability tips.
4: Weed less, mulch more.
5: Review the amount of water we're actually using.
1: Finally, we'll
2: be revisiting two of our favourite stories over the past few years that explore creative ways of adopting permaculture into our gardens.
3: It's something that has been practised by so many cultures and communities all over the world for so long.
1: You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with Gareth Richards and me, Guy Barter.
2: Just over a year ago, the RHS published its Sustainability Strategy, a 36-page document that outlines the many, many ways that we hope to be net positive for both nature and people by 2030. This includes things like working to reverse habitat destruction in gardens and green spaces, eliminating all single-use plastics from our operations, working to become zero waste, and much, much more. It's basically our way of showing you that we are committed to being stewards of a greener future.
1: But the sustainability strategy doesn't stop there. We're also looking at how we can make gardens more accessible, helping to bring their many joys and therapeutic benefits to everyone. We're in the process of working on a wellbeing garden blueprint that will look into the specific benefits of certain plants and garden features and working to embed sustainable horticulture into our educational outreach, research and training programs.
2: We won't get into all the nitty-gritty details of the strategy here, so do check out the link in our show notes if you'd like to learn more. We will, however, give you a glimpse into some of the research that we're doing to make this all a reality. So without further ado, here's Sustainability Fellow Chloe Sutcliffe.
4: So the overarching goal for the Sustainability Fellowship is to produce a calculator that gardeners can use at home to assess the positive and negative impacts that they're having on the environment when they garden. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to refer to the academic literature to understand what we know from science about how we can quantify the different types of impacts that we're having on the environment. So we know that we can have a lot of positive impacts on the environment. We can support biodiversity. Our gardens can, for example, slow down the flow of rainfall through the landscape. So we reduce the risk of flash flooding when we have our gardens organised in a certain way. Gardens also provide sort of cooling services, they reduce temperature extremes. We know that they're also really good for well-being and lots of other things that are important, I guess, services that we want to maximise as much as possible. At the same time, some of the things that we do when we garden can have negative environmental impacts. So things like using, you know, chemicals for controlling weeds and also the amount that we consume as gardeners will have a carbon footprint associated with it and so on. So a lot of what I've been doing in the first year of my fellowship has been trying to look through the literature and identify papers where studies have been done where these types of impacts are quantified. There are also some things that we don't understand very well at the moment. In a garden context, for example, we don't know how much carbon is stored in the soil and there are many different factors that create a lot of variability around that so we would probably be trying to incorporate some experimental designs where we collect primary data on the kind of natural science side but then i'm a social scientist by training so i'm also very interested in understanding more about you know why people do what they do what are the drivers of more sustainable behaviors what are the barriers So I think that's an important thing for the RHS to find out about as well, because, you know, just providing people with the information, this is the quantitative value of your impact on something, won't necessarily lead a person to implement any changes. So we sort of also need to contextualise that quantification within a wider understanding of why people are doing the things they do and what drives them towards undertaking more sustainable behaviours. I see interactions I suppose in a gardening context with the natural world as a real point of leverage where people can connect with nature and take care of nature and feel that they have some power to influence things for the better. Although you know it seems like a kind of fairly run-of-the-mill thing to go and do a bit of gardening it's actually in a small way an opportunity for us to kind of change some of the huge overwhelming problems that we're currently facing as a society you know it's pretty difficult to feel that you're making a difference to climate change or to you know these issues that we're facing But when you start to understand how everything is connected and you realise that you can make a small difference at the small scale and actually it's loads and loads of small actions adding up together at the small scale that will make a difference and are required to make a difference, then these kinds of uh, decisions around what we do in our garden, how we value nature, how we think about our own relationship with nature become really, really fundamental. Yeah, that's, I guess, the reason that I feel this work is important because it's helping to support people to have that understanding of how their actions influence these environmental outcomes on a small scale and how those outcomes all kind of link together to determine larger things that are happening in the world. One way that the RHS can help home gardeners to understand Their environmental impact is by providing the information in the form of a calculator. So probably people are familiar with like carbon footprint calculators and different types of lifestyle calculators that they can use to assess their environmental impacts. But the RHS observed that nothing like this really exists in the context of gardens. So the production of a kind of domestic gardening calculator is a way to help people to assess their impacts and work out how they might be able to change things to ensure that their impacts are more positive. We'll design a tool that people can report what they're doing in their gardens to that tool and we'll have an underlying spreadsheet which has a number of different values for different activities based on what we found out from the literature or from our own research. And then we'll be able to provide people with an environmental footprint score and an environmental handprint score. So we use footprint to talk about the negative impacts it might have on the environment and handprints to talk about the positive impacts it might have on the environment. So in terms of things like you know, carbon emissions, we would have a carbon footprint. In terms of your use of water, you can have a water footprint and we can have figures associated with all of those things. And then in terms of the handprints, those could be things like, you know, what kind of services is your garden providing and how are you helping to maximise those services? So to what extent are you supporting biodiversity through the things that you're doing in your garden? To what extent are you helping to regulate temperatures or helping to regulate the impact of heavy rainfall and so on? So whilst the sustainability calculator is not going to be ready for a few years yet I can tell you a little bit more about the research that has been conducted that will sort of underpin the calculator and how we can attach values to the different activities that you might be doing in your garden at home. Before I started working for the RHS last year, the organisation conducted a survey which was a, a population representative survey, so representative of the UK gardening population, looking at the different actions that people are taking to manage their gardens along the lines of sustainability targets that are included in the RHS's sustainability strategy. So looking at things like composting, tool use, use of pesticides, biosecurity issues, and also the types of characteristics people might incorporate in their gardens to support wildlife and those sorts of things. So we kind of got a a snapshot, I guess, of what UK gardeners are currently doing and how sustainable gardening in the UK currently is. Some of the things that we found coming out of the data is that we can look at what types of factors seem to be linked to more sustainable horticultural practice. And the interesting thing coming out was that it's not fundamental features in people, like their gender or their age, that tell us whether or not they're likely to be doing horticulture in a more sustainable way. One of the key factors that determine people's, I guess, scores for sustainability was their level of connectedness to nature, and that's something that can be improved. So the RHS, as a gardening charity, has an amazing opportunity to help people to connect to nature to help people be aware of their environmental impacts and all of those things should hopefully feed into people developing increasingly sustainable gardening practices at home.
1: Thanks there to Chloe Sutcliffe. As Chloe mentioned, the RHS has a wealth of resources and opportunities for anyone looking to feel connected to nature. We've included a few in our show notes. Check them out. Gareth, what do you say to people who are overwhelmed by the prospect of having to change everything? Well,
2: I really liked Chloe's point about small changes making a big difference. And, you know, we can quantify that in the negative way. For example, like so many people have paved over their front gardens. There's been a measurable increase in flooding in urban areas. But then if you flip that on its head, even if you lift up a paving slab or plant a tree in your front garden that will have a demonstrable impact, that will make a difference. And I think that's a really inspiring message that anything you do, however small, it's gonna make a difference. It's these thousands of small changes that help create the big change that we need.
1: As we head into 2023, we want to make it as easy as possible for you to make your gardens greener. Here are a few experts with advice on how to get started.
4: Hi again, it's Chloe, the Sustainability Fellow. So I think there can be a a misconception that sustainability is going to always be more difficult, take more effort, cost more money and so on. And actually, that isn't the case. Yeah, there are times where we would do things in a more difficult way in order to be sustainable. Like if you, for example, chose to pull all of the weeds out of your paving by hand rather than using weed killer. But there are also things that you can do in your garden that require less work that probably are more sustainable. So one thing is letting your grass grow longer and not cutting it as often. You know, we know that if we allow certain flowering plants to flower in our lawns, plants that are very often there anyway, like daisies, dandelions, those will provide support to pollinating insects. And I think people sometimes can be a bit worried that having longer grass is going to look a bit messy. But if you just, for example, mow a path through the middle of that long grass, it kind of contextualises what's happening and makes it look like it's there on purpose. It's not just there because you didn't bother to mow it. And it also provides a way for you to walk through the grass without damaging it. And when you walk through the grass, you can, I guess, connect more with the nature that's using your lawn. And so it kind of will have a lot of positive feedback for you as an individual.
5: Hello, my name is Joel Lofthouse and I'm a horticulturist at RHS Garden Harlow Carr So in the RHS Sustainability Strategy Plan, we want to become water neutral by 2030. And as we all know, the water resources in the UK are under extreme pressure from climate change and also population growth. So we need to look into different ways in which we can recycle and use that water. We've seen over the last couple of years a lot more flooding. We've also seen longer periods of drought. So in summer, we had a very dry, hot summer, which then resulted into a hosepipe ban across most of the UK. So my sustainability tip would be to review the amount of water we're actually using. And there's lots of different ways in which we can reduce the amount of water. One of the main things is to try and switch, if possible, from your mains to using more rainwater. A good way of recycling the water is to install a lot of water butts in your garden to capture any runoff water off your house, off your sheds, off your greenhouse. And this is then stored in them water butts until you need it. Another advantage of using your water butts is this will help prevent any further flooding in your garden. Other ways to reduce the amount of water is to check all your host pipes, making sure you haven't got any leaks to avoid any wastage. Also, if you have got a really dry garden, you might want to start looking at different planting schemes to suit your garden environment.
6: Hello, my name's Caroline Massey and I'm a horticultural advisor at Wisley. My top sustainability tip for 2023 and forevermore is weed less, mulch more. For a start, it's much less work, no digging and no chopped up worms. But uh, although it might seem like it's simply hiding the problem, kind of out of sight, out of mind, actually, by blocking out the light, it genuinely does kill the seedlings. If any do survive, I just hoe them off and add some more mulch. And if my soil is already weedy, I hoe it first, I leave the mess exactly where it is and put the mulch on top. So mulch is even better than that because it adds organic matter. This is good for our soil in so many ways, but the Improvement in structure means that our plants will cope better in both drought and flood. It makes it more like a sponge holding on to water but letting any extra drain away. It'll also add nutrients and will be better for every aspect of our soil health. And to cap it all, my favourite mulch, homemade garden compost, looks nice too.
0: Hello, my name's Rob Sterling. I've been a horticultural advisor for the past 12 years, and I'm based at the Wisley Garden, which is the main RHS garden in Surrey. For a sustainable garden this year, I would suggest making your own compost. Compost should be made from as many different types of plants as possible in order to create the diversity of microbiology in the compost. It's very simple to make. It would save lots of money buying your own compost and it would use up all of the waste vegetable material in the garden, which, you know, you may accumulate through cutting, mowing the lawns, etc.
7: Hello, my name is Dr. Agavindra Prasad, a postdoctoral researcher working on a project, Transition to peat free Horticulture in the RHS. The peat-free horticulture is extremely important in order to keep the peat in bogs, not in the bags. Peatlands supports a unique and diverse biodiversity. The flora and fauna which you can find in the peatlands cannot be found anywhere else. Peatlands act as huge sponges in the atmosphere, controlling hydrology by preventing flood situations and also providing cleaner water to the nearby water bodies. And the most important one, peatlands acts as an enormous and potential sink for atmospheric carbon and they store carbon for hundreds and thousands of years. Just to give a context, UK peatlands alone has capability to capture 3 billion tonnes of carbon and extracting peat releases carbon, damages the ecosystem accelerates the climate change by increasing the carbon footprint and also makes it difficult to reach the carbon goals which has been set by the government. What gardeners can do to do gardening more sustainable and contributing towards the peat-free transition reduce the use of peat and to opt for more sustainable and locally available materials to use as a soil mulch or soil conditioner example wood chips wood fiber or wheat straw or any other material which is locally available which is not peat. By reusing and recycling the compost or green waste which is generated in your kitchen and also the material which is generated in the gardening activity by composting and reusing the compost back to the garden is way better than using peat. And by reinvesting it is good to reinvest in your gardening activity by purchasing or by selecting a product which is peat-free and which is more sustainable, so collectively which can contribute to the peat-free horticulture. Thanks to
2: everyone who shared. I'd like to add to what Joe Lofthouse said about saving water. I found the best way for me or my allotment is to get hold of something called an IBC, an intermediate bulk container. You can get them from industrial estates. They're often used to hold things like food products or they're used as just water butts in, in industry. I've got a thousand liter one and I've collected 600 liters of water off my greenhouse roof since September. It's just amazing how much how much you can collect. So that's gonna take a big chunk out of my water usage Next summer,
1: IBCs are a great idea. You can often get them for nothing or for a very small sum. I'd have some in my garden and allotment if only they'd fit in my car. But unfortunately, they're quite big, so I have to make do with lots and lots of water butts all joined together. Water butts are great in a wet summer because they fill up and empty, fill up and empty, fill up and empty. But in a drought like the recent year, they're not so good because once it's empty it stays empty so that's unfortunate it does come back to how you manage your soil and choosing drought resistant plants and that's one of the things especially here in the southeast where I live that gardeners are going to have to focus on more and more in future years so that takes us to our last section of the show we're going to talk about one more eco-friendly practice permaculture so stay with us
2: Over the years, permaculture has been a popular topic on the show, so we wanted to bring back a couple of our most loved stories for this sustainability special. Here's an excerpt from a piece we did in January 2021 with grower and forager Poppy Acoccia.
3: So I first came across the idea of permaculture, wow, several years ago. I was basically on a kind of hunt to find any kind of alternative growing practices that went beyond organic and sort of went into a more holistic, bigger picture of working in harmony with nature and I suppose somewhere along that searching I found permaculture but the first time I saw it being practiced in a way that was just mind-blowing was when I went to India and I went to a food forest in Oroville which is something that's very often practiced in permaculture settings it's when you grow many many plants together mimicking the structure of a forest but it's actually also something that's been practiced for a really long time by indigenous cultures all over the world. So in an orchard, for example, you might include bulbs like daffodils as ground cover because they're not going to be competing with the actual fruiting crops, but they're going to be protecting the soil surface and they're also going to be attracting pollinators into the space. So it means that you're going to potentially get a better crop from your fruit trees, as well as also protecting and preserving the um, structure of the soil that the trees are growing in. And so this was in an experimental community in India. And the guy who was in charge of it was just like so amazing. He understood and knew every single plant that was in this forest, even though it just looked like a crazy muddle. And it was feeding so many people, creating so many jobs and also reinvigorating the landscape. So it was super inspiring. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, there's something good going on here. So three things that work from permaculture really well and a lot of people do in the UK is firstly the idea of mimicking the natural world. So we might look at soil and see that in nature it's always covered. And so a really easy thing to do, which is following permaculture principles, is to keep your soil covered at all times. And that really preserves the structure of the soil, keeps water from evaporating. And so keeping a soil covered with living mulches or even manure or straw, whatever it is, is a really easy way of incorporating permaculture principles, which a lot of people do in the UK. Another principle that a lot of people incorporate into their growing spaces in the UK is the idea of embracing diversity. So that's growing companion plants. It's just trying to expand the diversity of our growing spaces. So, for example, you might have a section of herbs in your garden and you might have a section of vegetables. Why not incorporate those two? And those plants will benefit from each other's company. And in the UK, we also oftentimes suffer from a lot of shade. And so permaculture, when we look at food forests, is a really great sort of example for how to deal with shady spaces, damp, shady spaces, like a sort of forest situation. So incorporating a lot of shade-loving plants like aquilegia or solomon seal, which are also edible, that's something that a lot of UK growers also do. The thing with permaculture is that it's actually just common sense <laughs> somebody had a lot of good common sense and put it in a book and a lot of us already have that common sense the useful thing about permaculture is that it actually explicitly spells out the common sense so even though it might be at the back of your mind you might not quite have grasped it sometimes people have this feeling of like oh yeah that's put into words a feeling I've had for ages so that's the thing that I find useful about permaculture It really just succinctly explains really obvious things which most of us kind of already do or have thought about and sort of explains and puts them into black and white. And, you know, as I was saying, it's not rocket science. It's something that has been practiced by so many cultures and communities all over the world for so long. This idea of working in harmony with nature, this idea of including diversity in the growing space, of using renewable resources, of reducing waste, all of these things are really well practiced by so many communities around the world.
1: Thanks to Poppy. One of the best ways to adopt permaculture is through hugel culture, which is basically a no-dig bed made from logs. Hugel culture claims huge benefits for our gardens, including the retention of moisture, soil aeration, and carbon sequestration, to name a few. Here's urban food grower Alessandro Vitali, aka Spicy Moustache, to walk us through all we need to know to build one of our own.
8: Yugal culture, it's a technique that basically helps to fill up a raised bed with organic matter. So you start with like a layer of logs at the bottom and you top it up with small branches, especially like apple branches. Once you top it up, you can then start adding more and more material, a sort of lasagna layering. So you add unfinished compost, food scrubs, and then you top it up with mature compost and top soil. And you can mix it with a draining material, and that's ready to plant. So obviously the material, by decomposing over time, they will start to release heat. So you will have for like a year time, maybe two or three degrees Celsius over the average temperature inside your raised bed. It's good because it can extend the actual growing season. But also, like, the cool thing is that you can plant straight away into it. So you don't need to wait any sort of time. And the microorganism eating the organic matter into the raised bed, they will eat and excrete new nutrients. So it's a constant loop. You don't need to add anything else. But also, I don't use straight yugle culture. I combine it with no dig, for example. So like, uh, I don't remove the plants, including the roots, but I cut them at the base, leaving the roots into the ground so they can be eaten up by the microorganisms and decomposed to create new nutrients. And I top up the raised beds before planting new plants with a thin layer of compost. And by doing this, as you can tell, like I don't need to add any sort of extra nutrients or pesticide or anything like that, it's fully organic. And I managed to grow food even in the middle of the city.
1: Thanks to Alessandro.
2: Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening.
1: This week, if you're looking for jobs to do in your garden, even though winter is still here, we have two great options for you. One is to get ready for sowing. Sowing season starts in a mere six weeks. So it's a really good idea to get the propagators out, give them a clean, make sure they're still working if they're heated propagators, and then clean all your pots, pans, and seed trays buy in any replacements so you're ready to go as soon as the weather turns round. Hold off from buying potting compost though, because often garden centres are only holding last year's stock, so wait for the fresh stuff to come in. Speaking of compost, compost bins are often full at this season, with all the autumn clearing up composted and rotting down nicely. So if you've got good compost, empty the bins now and spread the compost on the garden. Use planks if the soil is wet so you don't damage the soil and spread the compost as a mulch that'll keep down the weeds and feed the plants once the growing season really gets going. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter. And me, Gareth Richards. Goodbye and thanks for listening.